I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News Beat. What did the fossil fuel industry know about climate change, and when did it know it? Turns out, these giant multi-billion dollar corporations are well aware of the harmful effects of their greenhouse gas emissions for decades. Yet, instead of combating the crisis and, I don't know, saving all life on the planet from global thermonuclear destruction, they've engaged in obfuscation and manipulative marketing campaigns to sow confusion and mistrust of science and keep their money machines rolling. Simultaneously, some of the most influential ad agencies and news organizations in the world, from Edelman to the Washington Post, have helped fossil fuel companies hone their image, aka flat out lie, amid calls for increased action to reduce their contributions to the ever-worsening climate crisis that they helped create. Hey everyone, this is Manny Faces, producer, audio editor, and host of the award-winning Newsbeat podcast, where we shine a light on underreported social justice issues through our unique blend of independent journalism, music, and independent hip-hop. Now in this episode, we expose the deadly lies of big oil and its legions of blood money hungry advertising minions spreading disinformation to deceive the public into believing, among other falsehoods, that fossil fuels aren't really so bad for the environment, that the climate crisis isn't nearly as severe as scientists are making it out to be, and these super polluters aren't really destroying the planet, they're helping it. And hanging in the balance of their sixth charade is only the very existence of life as we know it. So, hmm. Unmasking this deadly and destructive deceit are Ben Franta, a lawyer, historian, physicist, and senior research fellow in climate litigation at the Sustainable Law Program at Oxford University, who tracks fossil fuel disinformation, and Duncan Meisel, executive director of the nonprofit Clean Creatives, which targets PR and ad agencies that deploy multi-million dollar greenwashing and misinformation campaigns that help delay climate action on behalf of fossil fuel clients. Now, as always, a quick reminder to subscribe to our free newsletter for new episodes and other informative content at newsbeat.substack.com. You can give this podcast five stars and a rating wherever you listen to the show, and feel free to drop us a line at usnewsbeat at gmail.com. All right, folks, here it is. This is Climate Propaganda, the fossil fuel industry's big lie. Today, we see greenwashing and disinformation from fossil fuel companies, for example, portraying themselves as working in clean energy when they're really not to any substantial degree. But that sort of disinformation and deception goes back decades. The earliest that I've found goes all the way back to 1980 when the American Petroleum Institute, which is this big trade association for the whole oil and gas industry, put out this policy booklet where it was promoting huge expansion of fossil fuels for decades to come, and it basically swept climate change under the rug. And this despite the fact that that same organization, the American Petroleum Institute, they had internal meetings and, and documents that described how they had been warned of catastrophic consequences from climate change. So there's this big mismatch between that industry's public communications and their internal understanding of the problem. And it, it really goes back decades. 
ExxonMobil has long been criticized for allegedly hiding what it knew about climate change. Just today, a pair of researchers say that Exxon's own documents prove that is true. Those two researchers, who are from Harvard University, they published a study today alleging that ExxonMobil tried to systematically mislead the public about climate change for 40 years. Shell is also one of the biggest oil companies worldwide. The company was in possession of a detailed internal report on the greenhouse effect in 1988. The report also mentioned how the burning of fossil fuels is responsible for said effect. In 1991, Shell actually produced a documentary called Climate of Concern. It explained how global warming could lead to rising sea levels. Research of this kind is being stepped up worldwide. The need to understand the interplay of atmosphere and oceans has been given a new sense of urgency by the realization that our energy-consuming way of life may be causing climatic changes with adverse consequences for us all. Since 1850, the consumption of these fossil fuels has increased a hundredfold. Add to this the more recent burning of the tropical forests and the result has been a marked and accelerating increase in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. What's more, there's been an even sharper increase in other, even more potent greenhouse gases. And by 1941, the warming has spread across the Arctic and extensively covered most of North America. Region-by-region region analysis of world temperature records shows a small but significant warming trend over the century with a marked increase in the 1980s. It's beginning to spread down to the tropics as well. Yes, it's not just over land areas, it's over ocean areas in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. Reduced to global averages, it shows a rise of just half a degree Celsius. This could be due to some natural climatic change, but it does accord with computer models based on the known atmospheric processes and predicted buildup of the greenhouse gases. These models contain many uncertainties, but they forecast that by 2050, global mean temperature could have increased by at least a degree and a half, possibly near a four. Years ago, I spent a lot of time traveling around, going to archives around the country and even around the world, searching for documents uh, from the fossil fuel industry, internal secret documents. One of the archives I went to was the old DuPont estate, which is in Wilmington, Delaware. DuPont, a name recognized around the world, famous maker of nylon, rayon, Teflon, and paint. And there's a really nice library and archive there that has a lot of business-related documents in it. <laughs> One of the things I found, which was really shocking to me at the time, was this speech from 1959 all the way back in the 1950s. This is like the decade when my parents were born. And, and this speech was from this famous scientist named Edward Teller. And he was a physicist who helped develop uh, nuclear weapons, especially the hydrogen bomb. No one who discovers anything does have or can have an idea how it will be used. All the scientist can do is to go forward, to understand, to apply, and to explain. He was speaking at this big meeting of oil executives. They were celebrating their 100th 
birthday, basically, as an industry in the United States. And they invited him to give a keynote address. And in his speech, he warned them about global warming. And I was shocked. He said, if we continue to use fossil fuels the way we are, then by the year 2000, we're going to have significant buildup of CO2. And CO2 is a greenhouse gas, and that's going to cause global warming. And it's probably going to cause things like melting ice caps, sea level rise, and flooding of the world's coasts. And he even pointed out that a large fraction of the world's population lives by the coast around the world. And so this was going to be a huge problem. And he said, we need to replace fossil fuels in the coming decades. And I was shocked, you know, when I, when I saw that, it, it really reframed how I understood this entire problem. I thought climate change was essentially a new problem. But as I learned more and more, I realized that the industry had been aware of this problem from long before I had been born. And that industry even developed internal research programs later where it developed a really sophisticated understanding of the problem and predicted a lot of the consequences that we're seeing today. It's the dawn of the 20th century and America is changing in ways never thought possible. Oil. Oil will power the 20th century and build the modern world. Some call it black gold. The American oil industry had been engaged in large-scale propaganda efforts since the end of World War II and even before. You know, at the end of World War II, the oil industry was bigger than it had ever been before because it was built out to win the war. And so at the end of the war, there was this huge, essentially, overcapacity to produce oil. And the industry needed to get rid of it somehow. It needed to sell it in a non-wartime society. Throughout the world, throngs of people hailed the end of the war in Europe. After World War II, people were demanding more petroleum-based products and buying more cars. The price of oil increased 80% from 1945 to 1947. So it began promoting itself in the 1950s as part of the American lifestyle, you know, the American road trip, you know, just using a lot of fossil fuel as part of the American way of life. For service that is tops and gas that's extra fine, there's a smile for every mile at the S-O sign. E-S-S-O makes your car go happy motoring. Part of that was the industry developing school curriculum material um, and disseminating it, uh, you know, putting it out there to schools all around the country. And, you know, when I was doing this archival research, I found things like board minutes, you know, discussions, internal discussions uh, within the American Petroleum Institute with representatives from the companies that are now Exxon and Chevron and, and so on. And one of the most surprising ones was from, I think it was from the mid-1960s, and they said, our materials are now being used in 80% of American schools. Our leader was undaunted. 
he immediately ordered our first expedition into space to bring back the secret of how other planets got their state limousines to run smoothly. The target was picked with painstaking scientific accuracy. Destination, Earth. It seemed no time till I was approaching a country of Earth called, uh, uh, the United States of America. Seeing moving lights in the distance, I headed for them. What phenomenal luck. I had landed close to what seemed to be an endless procession of state limousines. They moved quickly, and yet with fantastic smoothness. Just as I thought. Not only smooth and efficient, but powerful as well. It seems that almost everybody in this country has one of those, uh, uh, they call them automobiles. They use them for transportation, for business, for pleasure. They use them for all sorts of things. I found that these vehicles gather at places called service stations, where they are fed, lubricated, uh, that's how they beat friction, and given the finest care. The source of their nourishment was something called petroleum. Once they get oil out of the ground, it has to be moved through pipelines, on ships, or in tank cars to fantastic processing plants called refineries. Crude oil goes in. And great Jupiter, the things that come out. Gasoline, for example, the most efficient mobile power source on Earth. And you know, it isn't just oil companies that try to outdo each other competing for the customer's dollar. The same story is true of almost every successful business enterprise in America. The result? A higher standard of living in the USA than in any other country on the whole planet. By the mid-1960s, and, and these were all very pro-oil. It said, you know, we're going to use oil for hundreds of years to come. It talked about wind and solar power, but it said they'll never amount to anything. Hydropower will never amount to anything much. But fossil fuels are the future. And so this was the future that the industry was selling to America's school children, all the while not mentioning anything about global warming, even though, and this is a key fact, it's kind of an interesting point, is that at the very same time in the 1960s, the industry was hiring scientific consultants to study pollution. And those consultants got back to the industry and said, if we keep using fossil fuels, we're going to have significant global warming by the end of the century, and it's not going to be good. There has never been a time when the American public has not been subject to the oil industry's, you know, propaganda. It's self-serving propaganda. Once in a while, an old car like this still pulls into an Exxon station. When it does, it brings back memories. For instance, when this old friend came by back in 1934, it was probably to try the new gasoline Exxon was introducing that year. You see it in their eyes. They're pushing to raise the benchmark of quality. And after three million miles of testing, the people of Exxon know Exxon Supreme Gasoline offers the highest level of engine cleaning, all for one reason. For proven high performance, you can rely on. Let the tiger set you free. 
guess if you go back hundreds of years, but in the last three, four generations or so, we've always been subjected to that. I mentioned that effort by the American Petroleum Institute. What they really wanted was for the Carter administration at that time in the United States to get together with the other wealthy countries of the world and formally pursue a policy of mining a lot more coal, of drilling a lot more oil, and just expanding fossil fuel production for two or three more decades at least. That is what the Carter administration actually did. Those countries actually adopted the policy that the U.S. oil industry was pushing for. So we know it had an impact. And of course, the impacts from climate change are going to affect the world permanently. Just 100 companies are responsible for 71% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions in the last 30-ish years. All of these companies are fossil fuel producers. So here's a thought. The fossil fuel industry knows how to stop causing global warming. But they're waiting for somebody else to pay, and no one is calling them out on it. I was one of the authors of the 2018 IPCC report on 1.5 degrees Celsius. And after the report was published, I gave a lot of talks, including one to a meeting of young engineers of one of the world's major oil and gas companies. And at the end of the talk, I got the inevitable question, do you personally believe there's any chance of us limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees? IPCC reports are not really about personal opinions, so I turned the question around and said, well, if you had to fully decarbonize your product, that is, dispose safely and permanently of one tonne of carbon dioxide for every tonne generated by the oil and gas you sell by 2050, which is what it would take, would you be able to do so? Would the same rules apply to everybody? Somebody asked, meaning, of course, their competition. I said, okay, yeah, maybe they would. Now, the management just looked at their shoes. They didn't want to answer the question. But the young engineers just shrugged and said, yes, of course you would like it's even a question. The climate emergency is primarily a product of fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are responsible for approximately 90% of uh, greenhouse gas pollution. The companies responsible for that are oil companies, coal companies, gas companies. They work with advertising and PR companies to do a couple of things. First and foremost is to make themselves look more responsible than they are. There was a really great study of advertisements from Chevron over the course of a year where 80% of them mentioned something about sustainable or green or recycled or clean. And actually in that same year, only 1.3% of their research and development money was going towards clean energy. That's sort of the way that they try to mislead the public about their behaviors. To make progress, we must keep taking steps forward. We believe the future of energy is lower carbon, and to get there, the world needs to reduce global emissions. At Chevron, we're taking action. And the reason they do that is because the biggest threat to their business is governments and other corporations taking action to reduce the reliance on fossil fuels. These are companies that are almost entirely invested in one or two products. And so if that action ever happens to limit um, the use of those products, they would have a very difficult time surviving. 
The other thing they do with advertising and PR companies is they try to sow doubt. Um, they try to make it seem like the transition away from fossil fuels to clean energy would be too hard, too expensive, cost too many jobs. There's ads from the American Petroleum Institute that are like, isn't it great that you like records? Your records have oil in them. Just try to make it look like the transition isn't something that can be accomplished. What this is, is a really comprehensive attempt at propaganda to mislead the public to take a very particular political stance, which is that climate action isn't necessary, isn't feasible, and to delay governments from doing what's necessary to stop the climate emergency. Included in all this, a term that you hear a lot to refer to this is greenwashing. And greenwashing is just kind of a fancy word for lying. It's misleading the public about the environmental credentials of your company or your products in a way that leads them to use them when they would otherwise probably go with a cleaner alternative. While big oil spends are billions on advertising every year, they don't do it only to sell more product, but to clean up and improve their image. The Clean Creatives campaign calls this corporate propaganda or greenwashing. It's now calling on ad and PR firms to stop doing business with fossil fuel companies. Right now, we're facing a climate crisis. Fossil fuel companies know they're the ones driving this, so they're fighting for every last bit of profit. This is an industry fighting for its license to operate. The, the PR and ad agencies are the front line of defense for the fossil fuel industry. Clean Creatives put together a report we called the F-List, uh, which is the most comprehensive documentation of relationships between fossil fuel companies and agencies in the public relations and advertising world. And we did it for a couple reasons. One is we wanted there to be more transparency in this work. It's not something that agencies are particularly proud of. If you go to the website for the agency of record for the American Petroleum Institute, for instance, you won't find the American Petroleum Institute listed as a client. I think they know on some level that this is not work that they should be proud of. And then the other reason is to kind of give people inside the industry more information about who they're working with and what their employer or potential employer might be asking them to do. So a lot of major national publications, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, Vox, that are kind of prestige or elite companies, you can say, they all have uh, advertising companies attached to them. And what these advertising companies do is they produce what looks like news content um, that then goes onto the news websites and if they still exist, the newspaper. They call them branded content studios. And a lot of these branded content studios work with polluters. And the reason is, is that at these elite outlets like the Washington Post or New York Times or Politico, they have a really high readership in Washington, in New York, in places where decisions about money and power are made. And so the companies that are doing this work are, I think, really doing their readers a disservice. The thing that their clients are paying for is the illusion of news credibility. They're really selling a piece of what people read them for, which is their authoritativeness and saying and kind of auctioning that off to the highest bidder. I think it's a particularly bad example of one of the ways that influence is bought. Uh, using advertising and public relations firms. And I think it also creates a quite distressing incentive for the company itself to not prioritize the kind of climate coverage that we need that does accurately inform people about the nature of the emergency 
on the other side of the hall, their colleagues, the same company, are making money off the companies responsible for the crisis. There's no one place where we can track all of the advertisements that happen around us. I wish there was. Uh, but we have a couple good measures. One of them is the Facebook ad library, which tracks uh, political related advertisements by companies and political organizations. And you saw some really big spikes in the amount of money that the oil industry was spending on Facebook advertisements at a couple key points. The biggest spike happened when Joe Biden, as then the nominee, announced his climate plan. And there's no more consequential challenge that we must meet in the next decade than the onrushing climate crisis. Left unchecked, it is literally an existential threat to the health of our planet and to our very survival. Exxon kicked off a months-long spending binge to try and reach consumers and to persuade them that this wasn't necessary. And then once he was in office and Congress was convened and starting to talk about climate action, week after week after week, Exxon was the highest spender on Facebook. And the ads that they were running, which were facilitated by Edelman, the world's largest PR company, were all about trying to get consumers to call Congress and tell them not to pass climate bills. That's the work that Edelman was doing pretty much throughout a lot of 2021. Here's some things that are happening now. For one, the big oil companies are advertising themselves heavily as clean energy companies. You know, they, they tout all the activity in algae biofuel research or even, you know, if they're working on solar or something like that. But if you look at how much money they're actually spending on it, it's very, very little. Uh, for some companies, it's like 0.1% of their investments. And the rest, 99.9%, .9 go into more fossil fuels. All, all the while, you know, most of their advertisements are about clean energy. Today, we'll be unpacking the dual energy challenge. As the world's population rises, it creates a growing demand for reliable energy. But that can lead to a rise in CO2 emissions. So how do we solve this? We're researching alternative fuel sources like algae biofuel, deploying cutting edge technology to capture carbon and producing cleaner burning natural gas. It's how we're helping a growing world experience a world of progress. There's this misleading portrayal that they themselves are giving out, that they're putting out there about their own activities. And that's something that personally, I've seen that a lot lately. And I think that's going to continue unless it gets called out and, and stopped, including potentially through lawsuits uh, and, and legal means to stop that. Another part of this is promoting solutions that benefit the fossil fuel industry. And a big one lately we've seen is carbon capture and storage. And this is like sucking up CO2 from the air and compressing it and pumping it underground. Plants capture CO2. What if other kinds of plants captured it too? If these industrial plants had technology that captured carbon like trees, we could help lower emissions. Carbon capture is important technology, and experts agree. That's why we're working on ways to improve it, so plants can be a little more like plants.
and companies like Exxon have been advertising this as the solution to climate change. And the, the implied message is we don't need to replace fossil fuels. We can just use this carbon capture technology instead. Now, I don't want to say that that will never ever work, but I will say that we know now that Exxon considered carbon capture all the way back in the early 1980s. And even then it said it's not competitive compared to renewables. That, that technology existed then. That's something that a lot of people don't know, but it wasn't competitive economically. It's a new tactic in the increasingly urgent battle against climate change. Charleston is one of more than two dozen cities, counties, and states that are suing these companies, including ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, BP, and ConocoPhillips. I feel if you contributed to the problem, that you should contribute to the solution. The suits are modeled after the big tobacco cases of the 1990s. This innocent-looking product kills. Accuse the companies and industry groups of making false and misleading claims about climate change. I'm suing ExxonMobil because they lied to us. No court's going to have a hard time understanding that. William Tong is Attorney General of Connecticut. He's suing ExxonMobil under the state's consumer protection laws. He says internal company research done by Exxon and Mobil, which used to be separate companies, shows they were aware of the dangers of climate change since at least the 1980s. There's a study from, I think, 1982 in which they produce chart that shows as the levels of carbon dioxide rise, the temperature of our atmosphere will rise. Some might be familiar with the tobacco litigation from the 1990s. And, you know, tobacco lawsuits have a long and really interesting history about how long they took to finally succeed. They started in the 1950s and failed for decades before they finally succeeded. And one of the keys to success was obtaining the industry's internal documents and demonstrating that the industry knew about the damage caused by its own products and deceived the public about that fact. A story we set out to report six months ago has now turned into two stories. How cigarettes can destroy people's lives and how one cigarette company is trying to destroy the reputation of a man who refused to keep quiet about what he says he learned when he worked for them. The company is Brown & Williamson, America's third largest tobacco company. The man they've set out to destroy is Dr. Jeffrey Wigand, their former $300,000 a year director of research. They employed prestigious law firms to sue him, a high-powered investigation firm to probe every nook and cranny of his life. And they hired a big-time public relations consultant to help them plant damaging stories about him in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and others. What Dr. Wigand told us in that original interview was that his former colleagues, executives of Brown and Williamson Tobacco, knew all along that their tobacco products, their cigarettes and pipe tobacco, contained additives that increased the danger of disease. And further, that they had long known that the nicotine in tobacco is an addictive drug, despite their public statements to the contrary. Like the testimony before Congress of Dr. Wigand's former boss, B&W Chief Executive Officer Thomas Sandifer. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. 
And part of the reason I'm here is I felt that their representation clearly, at least within Brown and Williamson's representation, clearly misstated what they commonly knew as language within the company. And so now we're seeing something similar with fossil fuel companies. And in the last five years or so, there's been a big wave of lawsuits across the United States filed by cities and states suing the oil companies for the damages caused to those cities and states by climate change. And the whole idea is that, look, say Exxon. Exxon, you knew about this. You predicted that this damage was going to occur, but you didn't share that with anyone. You kept it secret. And then when the world tried to prevent the damage, you stopped us from preventing it. You lied to us. One of the cases that is most advanced is the lawsuit that Massachusetts Attorney General filed against Exxon. That case was just approved to go to trial. SJC 12376, Exxon Mobil Corporation v. Office of the Attorney General. Good morning, Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Justin Anderson. I represent Exxon Mobil in this appeal, which is not about climate change. <laughs> we are not asking this court to weigh in on the causes of climate change, the severity of climate change, what can be done about climate change, whether Exxon Mobil is right or wrong to recognize that climate change is real, to support Paris, and to advocate for a, a revenue-neutral carbon tax. Those are issues not before this court. And the core of that is that Exxon misled the consumers of Massachusetts about the environmental harms that their products caused. That Exxon knew how harmful their product was as early as the 1970s. And then they took steps to either hide that from the public by denying the impacts of climate change, like just plain climate denial, or by misleading consumers to believe that they were buying a more environmentally safe product than they were. A really key piece of evidence in that is these advertisements that Exxon still runs <laughs> about their investment in algae biofuel. These are very well-made ads. They're made by the agency BBDO, which is a large established New York ad agency. And they are telling consumers about these wonderful investments that Exxon has made in biofuels. Well, Exxon never sold biofuels. You can't buy that product. Um, it was never reached the commercial investment stage. Uh, they shut it down several years after it started. And part of what the Massachusetts AG is saying and what other legal experts are saying is that this is an example of essentially consumer fraud, that they've told consumers that their product was clean or that they, they were investing in clean technology and they weren't. And then elsewhere around the world, in Europe, for example, there are other kinds of lawsuits where organizations are suing governments, national governments, and they're suing big oil companies saying, you're not doing enough to cut emissions as a matter of the law and human rights and just the, the rights of people to live in a stable world. And we want the court to order you to cut emissions or to move away from fossil fuels. And that strategy has also seen success lately, especially in the Netherlands. There were some early cases filed there that were crafted very well, and they have recently succeeded against the government of the Netherlands and against Royal Dutch Shell, which of course is one of the biggest oil companies in the world headquartered in that country. Oh, 
an outburst of joy after the landmark ruling in The Hague. More than 17,000 Dutch citizens and seven environmental groups had filed a case arguing that Shell endangers people's lives and future generations with its carbon emissions. It's enormous, it's phenomenal, it's historical. <laughs> so, so enormously bad. For the first time, we really have a major chance to reduce climate change and ensure a safe and happy future for my three kids and all kids in the world. What they really are doing is they're looking at that Paris agreement, that's that climate agreement that says we want to hold climate change to one and a half degrees or two degrees Celsius. And they are using that as the benchmark. They're saying this is a consensus level of action. We are in a moment where these fossil fuel companies are financially as powerful as ever. They are huge, extremely profitable. They have operations all around the world. Some of these companies are more powerful than entire national governments. At the same time, their social positions, their political positions, their market position as well is declining. People are becoming more and more aware personally and directly about climate change. You know, they're experiencing climate impacts they're noticing changes, and that is only going to accelerate. The ability to measure the damage from climate impacts, um, it's a field of science called attribution science. And it's a little bit like epidemiology in the medical field. You know, it's, it's how do you measure the damage from a particular thing, whether it's a disease or whether it's climate change. That's getting better too. And that's feeding into these lawsuits. I see that the fossil fuel industry's position historically is, is ultimately doomed to failure. But the question is how soon is that going to occur? The responsible thing to do from a, a human perspective is to try to accelerate that, that replacement of that industry, right? Because ultimately it's, it's extremely destructive for a very long period of time. I sort of view that as the industry's position, ultimately a losing one, but, but still powerful. At the same time, no one and no industry is invincible. That's also an important lesson from studying history, that no matter how powerful a force might appear, it's not invincible. No one is ever completely invincible. Neither is the fossil fuel industry. Well, there it is. I know it's not just me. I'm sure your blood is boiling when you learn about stuff like this. They've been lying for decades. We're literally living in the most critical period to combat climate change and give future generations a fighting freaking chance for survival. And these greedy, egomaniacal clowns are flat out lying just to pad their pockets. Worse still, these suits are aiding and abetting these monsters. Well, now I know, and now you know. So listen carefully next time you see a splashy fossil fuel ad waxing poetic about carbon capture or their supposed green objectives. All right. Anyway, once again, I'm Manny Faces. Thank you for listening to Newsbeat. Huge thanks to our guests, Ben Franta and Duncan Meisel. Follow them both on Twitter at Ben Franta and at Duncan Writes. Check out Oxford Sustainable Law Program on Twitter at the Oxford SLP and Clean Creatives at Clean Creatives. 
Now, quick reminder to share the love, spread this all around the world, let people know what's going on so that everyone's more informed and help with the most existential threat we have to our existence. Subscribe to our free newsletter for new episodes and other informative content at newsbeat.substack.com. You can rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to the show. Feel free to drop us a line at usnewsbeat at gmail.com. And for our headquarters to get more about us and what we do, check out usnewsbeat.com as well. All right, y'all, that's it for now. Power to the people. We're out. This is a Many Faces Media production. Many Faces. You sick for this one. Sick for this one.